the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 50 of Magic Markets. It's a great milestone. It's very exciting for us. And we have a guest on the show, which is always a highlight. So Mo, let's say hello to you first, and then we'll welcome our guest all the way from the UK. I'm starting to feel like the United Nations. If it's not someone from Australia, it's someone from the UK, you're in Canada, and I'm here in the sticks in Cape Town. How's it going? Yeah, Ghost, it's, it's always great. I mean, we love doing this, and it's, it's nice to have international guests on as well, because I guess that's what we've committed to our listeners uh, of Magic Markets. Uh, and this sits in the, in the free show, and then we can obviously take some of these learnings and push those through into the premium show when we analyze some of the stocks. So I'm super excited to have guests on. I'm super excited to be the United Nations. Uh, and today, we've got someone all the way from the UK. Ghost, I'm going to let you introduce our guest today. Duncan Lishman, thank you for joining us. You're a South African expat, so you're in the UK now, but much like Mo, you uh, you know your way around South Africa. And you actually reached out to me on the back of some of the articles I wrote about the whole Burger King and Grand Parade deal and, and the Competition Commission and all of that. And you're a competition specialist, which is wonderful because I think this is an area that people don't really know much about unless they've worked in a little bit in corporate finance. That's how I've seen a bit of this in practice. But really, you've got to be a lawyer or an economist who's worked in this space to really understand it. And perhaps if you don't mind, just a 30-second introduction you know, of, of your background and, uh, and, and your expertise. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah, so for the last nine and a bit years, I've been working as a competition economist. Um, often when one kind of says that at a braai, the, the eyes glaze over of whoever you're talking to. Um, and usually I, I then follow up kind of saying, I'm an economist, but not one you hear on the radio. Can't say that about, about a podcast now, I suppose. You know, during that period, I've been working for a consulting firm. My focus has been uh, on South Africa, where I've worked in a number of mergers and abusive dominance cases for clients before really the South African competition authorities, uh, though I'm now based in the UK. Yeah, so perhaps to explain a little bit what a competition economist does is, you know, what, what a, an economist in the process is trying to do is understand and explain why firms make the decisions that they do and the effects that these will have on other actors in the economy, particularly competitors and then ultimately consumers because competition law is consumer-focused. And, you know, as you correctly identified, you know, the role that we play is ultimately part of a legal process. Um, and so we work quite a lot with, with lawyers. Duncan, if you think your life is difficult at a bra, Mrs. Ghost, when she meets new people and they say, what does your husband do? And then I think everyone thinks that I'm a drug dealer because she gets very coy about it. And she's like, oh, you know, he does a little bit of writing and a bit of this and a little bit of consulting. Oh, do you have a website? No, not really. How does he make a living? Yeah, oh, like it's complicated. 
So listen, your your life is not so it's not so difficult um, <laughs> in that uh, in that context. So I mean, thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Love having new expertise on the show. There's a lot we're going to learn from you. So Duncan, I mean, I, I'm an economist as well, and to be quite frank, I mean, they they chalk and cheese. A macroeconomist versus a, a microeconomist, which effectively I think a competition economist is is a subset of, is really vastly different. So thanks for sharing with us and the listeners, you know, what a competition economist looks like. We want to scratch beneath the surface. We want to know how do you view the world and you know maybe as as, as a starting off point i mean I, I struggle to explain to my kids what what an economist does so you're going to maybe struggle to explain to me in a little bit more detail what a competition economist does but from my limited knowledge of the space i mean economics is always about incentives like you say you're trying to figure out you know how do different actors and players within that ecosystem interface given a particular change in this instance the change or the catalyst being a, a competitive or anti-competitive behavior does that embed certain elements of game theory which again maybe some of our listeners are familiar with is that something that's in your tool set yeah i mean that's such an interesting question i think the the beauty of being a a micro economist is one has a big tool set to to draw from um certainly game theory is is part of it you know one one thinks about you know strategic interactions and ultimately a lot of a lot of what modern competition economics is built on uh has some game theoretical elements does it play out in practice a lot? Um, it can, depending on the on the case. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we we try and cobble together whatever whatever evidence, theoretical or empirical, that we can to sort of really come to a view on these issues. Duncan, you'll have to forgive Mo. He actually knows nothing about competition law. So when he heard you're an economist, he leapt in there and thought, "Geez, this is my one question on the show, and I'm going to get it in right now because his comp- that's Very where true. that's where his competition knowledge starts and finishes." So perhaps for the sake of educating Mo and anyone else listening and me, because I also don't know the answer to this question, or I wouldn't ask it. Competition regulation, the history. Again, one minute answer if you don't mind. Where does this thing yeah. really come from? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, you know, I've, I've touched on it already, but modern competition law really has a centerpiece and a focus on, on the consumer and consumer outcomes. And that really comes from the United States in the late 1800s, where you saw a rise in size and power of companies, particularly in sort of the oil railroad steel sectors and the u.s government therefore sought to introduce laws that many of which are actually still in place today um, although they've been supplemented embedded developed by case president to try and curb the use of that power by firms and that ultimately led to a lot of those businesses being broken up and an evolution of of competition law into a, a couple of like big strands that we still have with us today I think we've actually had a conversation before about that, and, and I think you're quite well-versed on that. Hey, What were some of those big names that applied back then? Yeah, so I think it, it comes from effectively antitrust regulation that came about because of Standard Oil. And Standard Oil was the Rockefeller company that effectively tried to circumvent the, 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 the anti-competitive uh, regulation, or, or at least the precursor thereof, by setting up a trust company that kind of superseded all of its various subsidiaries. And that's where the name antitrust or antitrust comes from. Quite remarkably, I think the stat that, that Ghost and I discussed off, offline back then is the Standard Oil that was then split out today would comprise of almost all of your oil majors. So it's Chevron, Texaco, ExxonMobil, parts of BP, parts of Royal Dutch Shell. And that just shows you how fundamentally important it is to have this kind of overarching uh, regulation to make sure that companies don't get so big 
that they actually start to negatively impact consumers. I think that's the genesis of what we're trying to get to here. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. Um, and I kind of mentioned that there, there are three main strands of, of competition law today. And I think all of those are on some way or another focused on that. You know, so if I, I go through them very briefly, you know, the first is, you know, some control on how dominant firms can behave you know so big firms typically have a lot of lot of power and you want to you know try and ensure that they behave in an appropriate way which ultimately lends itself to pro-competitive outcomes that are good for the consumer the second way is you want to control how firms come to agreements with one another and ideally that those agreements are not between competitors so you don't want ceos sitting around coffee every sunday agreeing to prices sharing sensitive information. And then the third strand is is merger control, which is you don't want to allow mergers to happen on a an unfettered basis where essentially you can create a monopolist out of taking independent companies that were competitors with one another and creating something that really is the market um, and, and can behave as it wants. So Mo does actually know some stuff about competition law. It's just about 150 years out of date, but there is a core knowledge base there that we're going to tap into. Duncan, your stuff is slightly more up to date, which is exciting. Um, and so is mine, because I remember from a corporate perspective, you know, you'd, you'd work on a deal for ages, firm intention announcement goes out, and way down the bottom, there's this little paragraph, conditions precedent, sign off by the competition regulators. And that little paragraph can be the death knell of so many transactions. It can be the death knell of so many advisory fees, which typically are milestone payments. Sometimes you get paid a piece then. Sometimes you get paid nothing until the ComCom approves it. So the advisors are still at that point waiting and waiting and waiting for their money. It is the lumpiest business in the world to do corporate advisory. It literally is Porsche or nothing, often nothing. So, you know, I think what would be really helpful for everyone to understand, because if you're in the markets, you see an announcement come out, you see the share price jump, and now it always leaves a gap. So if the offer price is, say, 100 Rand, the share price will often jump to, say, 90 Rand. It'll leave an amount there. And that's really a time value of money piece, firstly, and some deal risk that the thing might not actually go through. So, you know, it'll be good to understand from a process perspective, like, why does it take sort of six to nine months often for this stuff to get across the line? And why do deals sometimes seem to just get stuck at the commission with no real end date in sight. Yeah, I mean, I think if, you, if you're getting a merger through in six to nine months, you're probably doing quite well at times. Some of these large mergers can get stuck there, you know, for a long time. So what's typically, what's typically happening is that once a commercial arrangement is reached between the, the merging parties, a formal filing needs to be done with the competition commission, essentially where a whole bunch of required information is packaged and submitted to the commission. And that's because the commission has an investigative role in the whole process. It needs to look at this merger in terms of its mandate and in terms of the law and say, should we make a decision to approve this merger or a recommendation to approve it? Or should we prohibit the merger or make a recommendation to prohibit the merger? How does it begin doing that? Well, it needs to evaluate the filing that it's received, which is 
obviously quite quite meaty and it needs to go and conduct its own independent investigation it needs to go and talk to and has the powers to talk to competitors talk to customers talk to suppliers and really come to its own view of what the likely impact of this merger is going to be now if it encounters along the way issues that it can identify with the merger either in terms of competition related concerns or and this is fairly unique to south africa public interest concerns then it wants to scratch a little bit at that and figure out is this you know something that we really need to be concerned about and and ultimately find a condition for or worst case scenario think about prohibiting this this merger and and that then leads to it, it leads to a back and forth process which takes place between the merging parties through their their legal advisors and the and the competition commission i mean duncan that's very interesting i mean What's really quite stark for me is that it, it appears as though when you consider these things, not just competition, that the perspectives of consumers and shareholders sometimes are diametrically opposed. You know, that for, for, for a show, this is magic market. So, you know, we often look at the markets element. How do you reconcile that? And specifically in the context of what you just mentioned. So in South Africa, the unique element is public interest. I mean, public interest is really a catch net that catches all and, and goes. We can get into some of the detail around the South African nuances just now. But Duncan, maybe just give us your view on how do you reconcile those diametrically opposed objectives of consumers versus other stakeholders? Yeah, I mean that, that that's a great question. Look, I think you know for for the the competition and authorities in South Africa, um, as I say, you know what the consumer outcomes are. You know that's at the at the centre of the of the investigative work that they're doing and the decisions that they that they're coming to. The other stakeholders which are are considered are by and large groups that typically have not had the same type of say in society. Um, so workers are a, an important part of the, the public interest framework that these deals are evaluated um, within. So employment losses um, are something that are looked at, at very carefully. Shareholder interests, I think, are far down the list um, when these deals are, are, are considered. And, and I think ultimately, you know, the, the commission, or should I say the, the economic view would be that, you know, competition between firms spurs innovation, spurs a desire to to grow product lines, service offerings, and things like that. And really, shareholders can derive benefit in that way, rather than simply buying your nearest competitor and jacking up prices. Yeah, we see those conditions come through all the time. I mean, back when Walmart bought MassMart, there were a whole lot of conditions, local procurement, jobs, the whole shebang. I mean, the thing that started us talking was this whole sort of Burger King transaction. I was very surprised to see that they agreed to these conditions. I mean, they were far reaching. The biggest one, I think Duncan, we exchanged some emails on it was for me, the biggest one, at least was the fact that they can't be vertically integrated. Well, let me rephrase that. They can't be vertically integrated the way the original deal was thought. I've worked in corporate advisory for long enough to know that the legal position and the way the economics can be structured are often not the same thing. So I have no idea what's happened in the background there. I don't know what's been agreed between the new owners of Burger King and the plant that will be supplying them with meat. I can speculate all day long, but you know the reality is that the conditions were very hectic. I wrote very harshly about it because I felt like it was causing serious issues for, uh, you know, f- for deals in this country. And the most ridiculous thing of all, I'm not expecting you to comment on this, but I can, is that the shareholder in this case, Grand Parade Investments, is 
an empowered shareholder. This is a black economic empowerment investment holding company. And they were the ones being given a hard time by the commission trying to sell an asset and realize value for historically disadvantaged individuals. That to me felt like the most absurd thing you know, in that, in that process. But I also don't want to beat that deal to death because I think there's a much higher level stuff that we, can, that we can talk about, especially with a global lens because South Africa is somewhat unique. We know that, you know, with the competition commission here, it is a little bit of luck of the draw, I think, sometimes with what sort of outcome you get. But, you know, when we read about these international stories, a lot of the arguments, and I'm sure it's the same locally, seem to be about how you actually define the market for the purposes of the debate. So I'll use Netflix as an example, not because there's any competition stuff around Netflix, but it's just an easy example. So who does Netflix compete with? So obviously, Disney+. Plus, Any other streaming service, fine. What about DSTV? What about traditional satellite TV? Okay, cool. That's something you can watch on your TV. That's fine. What if I watch Netflix on my computer? Are they now competing with YouTube? I think they are. What if I watch it on my phone? Are we now competing with videos on Instagram? And that, that starts to become the debate, isn't it? There's a lot of strategy around how you define the market in these kind of merger, not just merger uh, issues with, with regulators, but also when they go and do investigations on a specific sector to figure out if there's anything they should be worried about. Yeah, completely correct. How one defines a market is or has tended to be and, and remains today um, a large part about a large part of, of competition analysis. And really, you know, that, that is a core role for a competition economist to play is using techniques to assess and ultimately define this market. Um, and what, what, what's one trying to do with that, um, that market definition? What really helps, I think, for decision makers in this process is to know, you know, what alternatives are available to consumers when they're looking at a particular product or the offering from a particular company. And why is that important? Well, if there are lots of alternatives, then it's easy for customers to, to turn to a substitute. If, in your example, Netflix decides to jack up its prices, people can go to Showmax, Disney, Apple TV, etc. Or, in fact, the ones that you're pointing out, which, hey, presto, most of those are at a, at a zero cost. It's free to use, but for your time and, and advertising data. But if Netflix is the only game in town, then... You know, what, what constraints are there for it to prevent it from raising prices or not producing another season of a, of a hit show and saving the development budget? So, you know, having that frame of reference is incredibly useful for a competition authority to think about in deciding what the right course of action is going forward. I think for investors, it's so important. If you understand a little bit about competition law and regulators and their powers, you understand a little bit about the risks of investing in big tech because Facebook is 100% riskier from an antitrust perspective than Netflix. It's just a reality. There's no question about it. We were recording the premium this week's premium show on Microsoft before we, we got on the, the call with you, Duncan. And again, like Microsoft has a bad history with competition regulators. There was a time, but those days are long past and really you don't really see issues anymore for Microsoft in that space. Not the same way you see it for Apple, Google, Amazon and the like, Mo. Yeah, I think, and also what's important for me, Duncan, in, in this whole discussion is that you can wear two hats. One is you can wear the consumer, regulator, altruistic hat. The other hat you could wear is the investor hat. And so I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to keep coming at this with the investor hat and say, you know, in your experience, it's all well and good that reactively 
we could look at some of the activity in the space and you know a competition economist like yourself can say the probability of this deal going through is x for example these are some of the sticking points etc and that could be a source of alpha but what about using it proactively to say you know in these particular deals these are you know some areas it's it's like event driven hedge funds look for these kinds of dynamics do you think there's a role for competition economists and for you know effectively someone who's a specialist in the space to become a source of alpha generation for people that are looking at it from more an event driven perspective so alpha is essentially the investment return over and above over and above the market yes. average so the idea is can you actually use your lens your understanding of big tech, which I know is not a topic we can talk about in great detail, but I think part of the risk weighting on these future cash flows, if you have a good understanding of competition law and antitrust and everything else, you can probably have at least a reasonable input into you know that investment decision, I think. It can't be the only factor, but it's got to be a factor. Well, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk up the skills of competition economists and, and uh, expand the potential employment base. Um, look, I mean, it is an interesting, uh, it is an interesting idea. You know, I, I've not heard of it being used, but, you know, certainly in a, in a private capacity, one could think about it when one is obviously not involved in a deal or an investigation. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there, there, is, there is that aspect. I mean, maybe more broadly, microeconomics as a whole offers a lot of really useful tools for thinking about company activity, you know, in, incentives of, of various parties. So just as a, as a really a way of, of sort of navigating one's way through just the investment and finance world in general, I think economics broadly offers some, some useful, uh, useful tricks and, and ways of thinking about things and understanding the world. So yeah, Duncan, that's super interesting. And I think the value of competition economics is actually more than maybe uh, even you realize because this can have very serious impacts on investment returns. And it is something I look at specifically, and maybe that's my corporate finance background because I've seen how well and how badly this can actually go in deals and for companies and, and people forget about these conditions and how hard they are all going to be ultimately. And I mean, in the Microsoft show, it's something we specifically raised. So it's interesting that you don't necessarily see that too often because it's one of the factors we look at is, you know, is a dollar of earnings in Microsoft worth more than a dollar of earnings in Facebook simply because the Microsoft dollar is less likely to be attacked by the regulatory authorities. And we think it is worth more. And that's part of why Microsoft ends up trading at a higher structural valuation. So these are some of the factors that you can use to understand why company X is on a multiple of 10, company Y is on a multiple of five. No one really knows, right? All we can ever do in the markets is just give an educated thesis that says, this is why we are seeing something. And can you justify it on that basis? Yes, no, maybe, take a view. And then most importantly, execute a trade. You, you know, it doesn't count unless your money is in that view, whatever that view may be. That's, that's where it becomes very practical in the markets, where it can become very painful. And sometimes, as we well know, where the markets can just deviate from all sense of reality. And I'll resist the temptation to reference a certain electric vehicle company currently, which continues to drive me mildly insane. But uh, Mo, Duncan, perhaps we, we should leave it there. Just one last point on competition before we leave it there is I would challenge anyone looking at that Tesla share price to just contemplate whether they foresee a world in 10 years time where every human drives a Tesla. Every human, your neighbor, your auntie, your uncle, he your cousin. Could not resist. Couldn't resist. That is what the share price is pricing he in. He couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I'm done now though. I've had my Tesla rant for the day. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us, talking a bit of nonsense here, but most importantly, learning about competition commission stuff and competition law and how it affects the markets. And Mo, you have to be here, but thank you anyway. 
<laughs> Thanks so much, Duncan. It's been great. We loved having you on the show. And uh, look, I think again, as we we bring in guests with ever more. Uh, interesting perspectives and uh, dimensions allows us to scratch beneath the surface and that's when we find out how much we still have to learn so like I always say with a lot of the guests we've had on recently I think there's so much more we could discuss uh, and perhaps a topic for another day but for today thanks so much for being with us and to our listeners thanks for joining us on Magic Market remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.